It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Whitney Lordson. I am absolutely thrilled about this episode today. It has been at least months in the making. Officially, we have been talking about having this guest on our show for a couple months, but this is an incredible author who I fell in love with. (laughs) Let's see. I believe it was in September 2020 when I started listening to the audiobook version of Do Nothing. How to Break Away from Overworking, Overdoing, and Underliving. I was listening to this audiobook on a cross-country road trip, and it absolutely, gosh, I was going to say blew me away, but I feel like that term does not quite do it justice. I just was instantly taken aback by how powerful this book is because I have been thinking about how I could break away from overworking and how... It might actually benefit me and others in my life to do more of nothing. (laughs) And I love this book so much that I've also read the written version of it. And I've listened to the audiobook, I think, two and a half times at this point. And then I picked up Celeste's book, We Need to Talk, How to Have Conversations That Matter, which was also wonderful. And I thought a nice quote to bring up. I don't know if this is in either of your books, Celeste, so forgive me if it is, but it actually came from another book that I'm reading about digital minimalism. And I thought this kind of summarized (laughs) or, or bridged the gap between your two books, I should say. It's from Edward Gibbon, who said, conversation enriches the understanding, but solitude is the school of genius. And to me, that idea of that it's so important for us to communicate with each other, as you talk about in both books, but we need to spend more time in solitude and not necessarily on our own, but by doing nothing, by spending more time with our thoughts and less time trying to be busy overworking and on our devices, perhaps we can actually enrich our lives more than we do when we're addicted to productivity and efficiency, as you talk about so much and do nothing. So I'm thrilled to explore this with you today. Thanks. I mean, another thing that that quote, first of all, that was an awesome intro. Thank you. But that quote reminds me of one thing I I found in my research that still stays on my mind, which is this idea that human beings are designed to pulse. He's given as they're talking about alternating between conversation, social interaction, and solitude, not living in all in one space or the other, but alternating between the two. And it's the same thing for human beings that we are not designed to persist. We're designed to pulse, pulse between activity and leisure, pulse between social interaction and isolation. We're designed to naturally have a heartbeat to our lives of sometimes pressing and sometimes relaxing. I think that's interesting for a lot of reasons, Celeste, because I I feel like during this period of isolation that the world has been in, I've had a lot of conversations with people who may identify on a spectrum of extroversion or introversion. And it's interesting the contrast you bring up. And I think about this pulsing concept in the sense that I think pre-pandemic, 
I was very much out all the time doing events, doing speaking appearances, kind of just being maybe overly social. And now over the past year, spending a lot of time in isolation and a lot of time with myself and my own thoughts, I have a mixture of excitement and anxiety when I think about going out and being social in large groups of human beings. And I'm curious, you know, in terms of our emotional response to perhaps a post-pandemic world, it's interesting just to notice these feelings of anxiety around being from other humans, but I also desire it because I miss other humans. <laughs> yeah, I think you've brought up an important point. And if there, I mean, the, there's nothing good to say about COVID-19, obviously. But if there's maybe one silver lining, I hope that it's that perhaps people are realizing they're not the introvert they thought they were. Introversion is really misunderstood. It has been trendy for a little while for people to identify as introverts. But the fact of the matter is, is that people, it's unlikely you're an introvert. A small percentage of the population are introverted. Even if you go back to the origins of those phrases, introversion and extroversion, you'll see that they were always intended to describe the extremes of the spectrum. The vast majority of humankind lives in the middle. We're ambiverts. We are adaptable. We can be in a party if we need to be and, and survive. We sometimes need to be alone. Sometimes we like to be among other people. Sometimes we like to sit on the couch and watch Netflix. Most people are ambiverts. And so I think that as people started to shelter at home and like you began to realize, wow, I, I really miss other people, perhaps it's making people realize they're not introverts. They're ambiverts. They sometimes want to be around others and sometimes want to be alone. That's how we all are. I mean, obviously, we've gone the other way. People are too alone right now. But to be frank, we were already in a loneliness epidemic before the pandemic fell. We were already isolating ourselves, isolating ourselves to a pretty dangerous degree before COVID-19. COVID-19 has made it worse, but it was already bad. Yes. And, and that actually leads me to a big question I have for you, Celeste, about how it felt to release a book, right? Because didn't your book Do Nothing come out on March 10th, 2020? And the pandemic was like <laughs> that week, right? Yeah, exactly. I got two days. I think I arrived in New York Sunday night. I had Monday and Tuesday of my book tour, and then everything closed on Wednesday. <laughs> I mean, obviously, that's the least of the disappointments associated with COVID-19, but it's been rough for authors. It, I mean, I think there's this an assumption that book sales have gone up. I don't think that's entirely true. But, you know, I mean, the thing is about authorship and writing is it's such a solitary activity that I am among those authors that actually really looks forward to those book tour events of the book signings and meeting your readers and hearing their stories. And it's inevitable that people who have read your books, they have found new perspectives on them or new ideas, or they make unexpected connections. And it's always really exciting. So that's disappointing. But again, I'm healthy. And that's the important part. Absolutely. I'm curious about how it felt to release a book about doing nothing, which probably felt really timely before the pandemic, but our relationships to doing nothing shifted a lot, I think. Because I remember at the beginning of 2020, I was craving it. I wanted to do less. And then in March, I had this opportunity. And, and we thought at the time that, oh, well, we'll stay home for a few weeks. We'll figure this out. It'll go away. And then we'll be back to normal. And here we are and recording this episode at the end of February 2021. And 
Well, uh, it's been almost a year of this. And yet, Celeste, I also feel like your book is like simultaneously... I mean, you were writing it before you knew all of this was going to happen. So it was from likely a different perspective, but it's like, it's timely and it may be a different way than I imagine you expected it to be, if that makes sense, because our relationship to technology and productivity has shifted a lot during COVID. And one thing Jason and I have discussed a lot is how in like April 2020, I think there were so many people coming out and saying, if you're not using this time to be productive, you know, and to hustle. And, you know, they were like, hey, let's take all this new time we perceive that we have and use it to our advantage. I'm really curious how you felt about this past year and that mentality. When the pandemic fell, when it became clear, as you say, that it wasn't going to be just a few weeks and that it was going to be a while, I was really apprehensive. I said, this is going to make stuff so much worse. And it did. (laughs) And the reason I thought that is because we are not designed, our homes are not designed for us to relax in anymore. People don't do stuff at home that's not really work-related. I mean, if you think back to like our parents and grandparents, they had hobbies, right? They made models, they collected stamps, (laughs) they polished rocks, they did coin collecting, they had all these hobbies that didn't weren't really worth anything on your resume, right? They weren't shareable on Instagram. They were just stuff that you enjoyed for no reason. We don't have any of that anymore. And so our homes are not sort of a refuge to sort of relax you and help you enjoy leisure. There's nothing to do at home anymore. I read a report saying that, you know, a lot of Americans don't know how to play any card games except solitaire and poker. So all these people were sitting at home with really nothing to do. And I said, okay, people are going to start working more. And in fact, they have. The preliminary research shows that people are working longer hours and they're taking more meetings during the pandemic than they were before. And the reason is that one person put it this way, we're not working from home, we're living at work. So basically what we've done because we don't have our homes set up to bring delight or play or relaxation we just allowed work to claim every corner of our homes. People would pick up their laptops and move from the kitchen to the living room, to the bedroom, wherever they want, and essentially telling the brain that every part of my house is appropriate for work, which means that your brain is never going to shut off anywhere in your house because you're at work, as far as you know, cognitively. I knew it would be bad. And yeah, it's bad. That whole This great person wrote four novels while he was stuck in prison or during the plague or whatever. I was on that from the beginning, trying to say, this is crap. Do not listen to this. Just sit at home in your PJs and put your fingers, I don't care what you get, put your fingers through your hair, do whatever you want, polish your living room table. I don't care what it is, but stop working. I'm curious, Celeste, how how the feedback that has come to you during the pandemic, especially releasing this book, Do Nothing, that as Whitney mentioned, she had forwarded me her copious and wonderfully detailed notes. And one of the biggest things that I took away from reading these sections was our sort of, I like to call it a toxic capitalist culture, sort of this corporate military industrial complex has commodified humanity. You know, we've really turned people into numbers. We've turned people into leverage points to increase productivity and shareholder value and and kind of have really dehumanized 
people in a myriad number of ways. And I'm curious when you purport a philosophy of do nothing, engage in more leisure time, and sort of remove yourself from this manic need to be productive and efficient all the time. Did you receive any kind of messages of like, you know, we're in a pandemic, right? And like, I have to feed my kids and you're telling me to do nothing. And yet I'm scraping by to like put food on the table. I'm curious what kind of pushback you've received, if any, and how you reconcile if a person is kind of in that state of like, no, I have to produce and there's no other choice. And you're telling me I got to chill. I ain't got time to chill. You know, it's so funny. I can almost instantly tell the difference between someone who's read the book and someone who hasn't based on just this. (laughs) (laughs) This isn't a, a dig at you, Jason. We're all busy. But this is just a comment that I have based on responses. I am one of those authors who very much stays away from any of the comments on whatever Amazon or Goodreads, whatever. But when people are responding on social media, I know who hasn't read it because people who have read the book are like, they find the idea, the concept of do nothing as I express it, which is not literally doing nothing at all, but just finding leisure in your life. They find it relaxing. Those who haven't read it find that the simply bringing it up to be stressful. Like that's the difference. But the purpose of my digging, you know, I start almost start the book with this deep dive into history. The purpose was to relieve that stress for people because we have this feeling like this is how it is. This is how the world works. This, I can't get off this treadmill. And the reason I went back through all those centuries of labor histories was to prove that this is really recent. This toxic productivity, this never ending treadmill, this is all within just like two to 300 years, which is an eye blink in the history of our species. We lived one way for most of the 300,000 years we've been on this planet. And then the last 200 years or so, 250 years, we changed everything and not for the better. So it should be relaxing to understand that if it changed once, it can change again. This is not the way things are supposed to be. You are not crazy when the pace of your work and the pace of your life is making you feel stressed out. It's not just you, it's everybody, because this is not what's healthy for us. And we can live a different way. So beautifully said. And that's why I've read your book a few times now, Celeste. Every time I every time I revisit it, I, I get this different perspective. And and I've actually listened to it with other people. And one thing I've noticed is how hard it is to grasp some of the concepts that you bring up because of everything that you're saying. It truly does feel like an addiction to efficiency that we're in. And as human beings, we're, we're often like stuck in whatever perspective we have at, at the moment based on what the media is face, feeding us and our friends are doing. And I really appreciate the background history and the research that you've done to show that like we don't have to live this way. This isn't the only way. And it doesn't necessarily benefit us. You know, part of your point of the human drive to constantly improve is a big thing that I think a lot of us face and perhaps why that was a knee-jerk reaction to COVID. It's, it's like, okay, well, we're so scared of what's going on. What can we do? What can we control at home? Oh, we can improve. You know, We can start a different workout. We can read more books. And myself included, this is something I've been examining, my desire to constantly optimize. And that was part of the reason that I started reading your book is reflecting on how 
connected I've been to technology and all of these different tools out there to do what I perceive as growing, but how that might be working against me in ways I didn't even fully realize. And now it's challenging for me. And I'm I'm very curious to hear your perspective on this, Celeste, is once you start thinking about doing less or shifting the way that you're operating in life, but other people in your life are still addicted to efficiency and productivity and the hustle and the busyness. I'm personally very sensitive to the word busy, for example. (laughs) Whenever I hear someone say, I'm busy, I get so triggered. (laughs) It bothers me so much because it feels like uh, such an empty word. When I see people that are just hooked on their phones and hooked on social media and constantly working and can't take breaks, I think it triggers me because I've read books like yours and I see this research and I'm fearful for them, but I think it also triggers me because part of me thinks, hmm, maybe I should be living that way. Maybe doing nothing isn't the answer. So it's tough to operate when the world is so collectively addicted to efficiency. And I'm curious how that's been working out for you since you've done all this research. Yeah. And you know, so when I first started really digging into the research, I was like, wow, we've all been brainwashed into believing all this stuff. And I was using that sort of metaphorically, (laughs) that word brainwash. But then as I kept researching, I realized it's actually literal. (laughs) There really were intentional campaigns designed to convince us to change our values, to convince us that to sit idly or to do something that's not earning money or that is not productive for society, the broader society, is not just wasting money. It's also bad, like evil. Like you're a bad person (laughs) if you're doing that. Idle hands are the devil's playground, right? Like it literally was an intentional campaign. And when I say that, I mean like you can trace back the some of the sermons that were preached, especially in the 19th and early 20th century, in which these priests and pastors had close relationships with people like the Carnegies and the Rockefellers. And so they were actually preaching the messages of these uh, robber barons to their congregations. There came this confluence of capitalism with religion and with patriotism. So you had this three-pronged effort to try and brainwash people. And that's sort of why I call it, the original title for the book was The Cult of Efficiency based on a Bertrand Russell quote. And I really think that's where we are now. And it may be why you have ended up listening to it more than once and reading it more than once, because if you're in a cult, you have to be deprogrammed, right? And that's sort of where we all are. Wow, yes. The deprogramming, absolutely. I've had to learn to be more accepting that some people are so deeply embedded in in that cult. Exactly. And that actually leads me to your second book that I read, which came out in 2017. Is that right? We need to talk. Uh huh. I think that book is also very timely right now and is a great follow-up to Do Nothing, but also leading up to your upcoming book, which comes out later this year. I think I started getting more and more interesting and having uncomfortable conversations. And, you know, that's the whole theme of this podcast. (laughs) You know, the conversations themselves don't always feel uncomfortable, but it's like addressing the things that are uncomfortable in our lives. And learning how to be a stronger communicator is incredibly important. 
not just for me as a podcaster, but in my personal life, especially for what else happened in 2020, which is reflecting more on racism in the country and the world and looking at my relationship to racism and how do I communicate better as an ally. So I'm thrilled that you have been working on a book about this and maybe you can give some more context to the listeners and then we can talk more about how to have conversations that matter right now. In the first book, uh, We Need to Talk, I did spend one chapter talking about difficult conversations and I focused a little bit on race, but I sort of included like all the difficult conversations that we have, oftentimes about politics, frankly. But what I was discovering, so I wrote that in one in 2016, and here we are five years later. Oh my God, it's been five years. And what I was discovering was that I, I needed to say more about how to talk about race. There are plenty of books out there that are like, oh, let's talk about race. And they're awesome and they're really valuable, but they're basically saying educating people on issues of race. And what I wanted to do was walk people literally through the conversation. Here's how you choose when to engage and not to engage. Here's how you get yourself mentally and emotionally prepared for the conversation. And here's how you get through it. And the reason I felt that was so necessary is because looking around me, the conversations are so bad. They're so unproductive. They're moving us in the wrong direction. What you have are BIPOC people, uh, Black, Indigenous people of color on one end who are angry, justifiably angry and tired. And on the other hand, you have mostly white people who feel defensive. Even those who are considered or consider themselves or are considered allies are going to make mistakes and they're going to get called out on it, or they're going to be told that they benefit from privilege. And that's going to make people feel defensive. And when you have a conversation between people who are angry and people who are defensive, it's not going to go well. And yet the need to have these conversations, the, just the urgency to have the conversation in which you humanize one another instead of other one another, in which you can without, even if you don't agree, find a shared purpose, a shared interest, any kind of common bond. It's just so crucial right now. And it's just getting more and more urgent all the time. Without giving away your book too much, Celeste, I'm curious if you can share how to bridge that gap. As you mentioned that there's sort of this chasm between people and the conversations that you've witnessed have not been that productive or moving in the right direction. So in a general sense, how do we bridge that gap and start to have better quality conversations where we can relate to each other on a deeper level? So the first thing I tell people in the book is just accept that you're racist because everybody is. In other words, absolutely everybody on the planet makes assumptions about other people based on their their perceived color, race, or ethnicity. Everyone. And if you can just let go of that, let go of this fear that you'll be identified as racist, let go of the question of whether to call someone racist or not, just let it go. It's the least important part of the conversation. The most important conversation is not who's racist or who isn't. The question is, where can we find any kind of shared connection? And here's another thing that people need to let go of. It's this idea that a good conversation has to be between people who like one another. You do not have to like someone to have a good conversation, not even in the least. And when they've done research on this, especially in the workplace, they have found no connection 
between teamwork and how well people like each other. So it doesn't matter if you like them or not. It doesn't matter if you agree with them or not. Listening to someone is not endorsing them. It gives them nothing, no tangible benefits. The goal of the conversation is not to change anybody's mind. It's not to persuade anybody. It's not to, again, reward someone. It's simply to gain better understanding. Understanding of yourself, understanding of the other person and where they're coming from. I think this is so critical what you shared, Celeste, because one thing that I have observed over time is the role of social media in continuing to stratify human beings and really fuel the separation. And not always based in truth. I mean, certainly last year highlighted a lot of disinformation, the concept of fake news, and also the revelation that a lot of the big social media conglomerates are programming their AI to increase engagement, shares, followers of inflammatory, violent, divisive content. And we know that now. We know that these platforms are automatically sort of favoring those type of posts. And so it's interesting to think about the sort of alternate reality of social media, where if one wants to look at a world that is violent and angry and separate and divisive, but then it's like, okay, can I, proverbially speaking, you know, walk up to the person who might be a, I don't know, a Trump supporter or something and say like, okay, I'm noticing I have a reaction to this person, but I actually want to literally sit down and have like a respectful human conversation with them. And I just think it's overcoming not only the societal conditioning, but overcoming the pull of advertising and social media that seems to just be fueling this idea of separation. And you have to be quite careful with social media. A lot of people actually think of social media as social interaction, and it's not. We know what social interaction looks like to our hormonal systems and our cognitive processes. We know what it looks like when a human being engages with another human being. That doesn't happen when you're on social media. It just doesn't. There is a use for social media. A social media is excellent at disseminating information, as you've just alluded to. Sometimes that's good. Sometimes it's not. It's bad. It's very good at making connections. But if you actually want to turn those connections into a relationship, you have to get offline. Look, the fact of the matter is, is that we have spent 300,000 years on this planet and we have evolved specifically to communicate through the human voice and ears and especially in person. But really, the most effective way to communicate if you can't be in person is the phone, just the phone. Let me put it to you this way. I mean, social media, it exhausts your social energy because you pour energy into it. But your mind every day makes millions and millions of decisions about what to do. And it generally does that according to reward versus cost. What is the reward I get out of this activity versus how much it costs me to do it? So my neighbor goes jogging because that ups his endorphins and he gets a big reward of that versus the cost of having to run. Me, I have arthritis in my knees. So the cost would be much higher. So if I need endorphins, I don't go running. Well, when it comes to social media, the cost is infinitely higher than the reward that you're getting. You are not going to get all those mood boosts, the stress relief, all of those things that are associated with authentic interaction you're not going to get them from social media. And yet the cost to you, both emotionally and cognitively, is very high. And we're simply not designed to communicate that way. So think of it this way. Have you ever called a friend or a family member on the phone and they said, hello, and you said, what's wrong? <laughs> yes. For sure. Right. So that is how quickly, in less than half a second, 
your brain has taken in an incredible amount of very sophisticated and complicated information. Something in their breath, their tone, in less than half a second, your brain translated into probably accurate emotional information that cannot be replaced through written text of any kind, book, newspaper, whatever. It can't be replaced. Well, first of all, have you spent any time examining Clubhouse? And if not, I have a follow-up question. But if so, I'm curious what you've discovered. I have not because I don't use an iPhone. Aha. That's certainly been a challenge for those that have an Android. So I'm very curious to see how Clubhouse will evolve when it's open to all devices. And I bring it up because what you're saying about using our voice versus text really applies to that platform. And it it has grown so fast. And I have really been fascinated with that. Is it growing because it's new? Is it growing because people are lonely? Or is it growing and or I should say, is it growing because it's using our voices instead of written word? There's no written word on Clubhouse aside from your bio that you fill out for your profile. And so it sounds advantageous based on what you were just saying, Celeste, about our voices. However, a huge issue that we have on Clubhouse, in my opinion, is that people aren't listening to one another often enough. A lot of people go on this platform, from my perspective, to to speak, to share. And just I think it's because of everything that we've been trained through social media and business in general. It's about getting on the new platform and establishing your authority. And I felt that pull. I felt that desire to get up there and show how how smart I am and what I know and all these things, you know, trying to like boost myself up. And I really want to do more and more listening. And one thing that I found really interesting about that platform is it does people get uncomfortable when there are silences on Clubhouse. There's like a need to fill every single gap. And there's also a perception of you always have to have your talking points ready. And this is something that you bring up in We Need to Talk. (laughs) Instead of listening to one another, we're just like waiting for our chance to speak again. And I'm wondering if Clubhouse is encouraging that in some way or the culture of Clubhouse, I should say. It's a great question. And I will be really looking forward to the research that comes (laughs) out after Clubhouse has been around for a little while. I mean, you've mentioned a number of things and I can speak on all of them. Number one is this need to constantly talk, talk about ourselves. There is so much research on this. And just to just to give everybody an out here for a second, <laughs> one of the things I talk about in that book, We Need to Talk, is how pleasurable it is to talk about yourself, to talk about your interests and the things you know and the things you like. You know, they did a study at Harvard in 2012, I believe, in which they put people inside MRI machines and gave them the opportunity to talk about different stuff. And they found that talking about yourself, it's called self-disclosure, activates your dopamine response. That's your addiction hormone. It's the exact same hormone neurotransmitter that starts pumping if you're pulling the arm of a slot machine. So it's inherently pleasurable to talk about yourself, number one. So be kind to yourself and give yourself a break. The other thing I th- would say is that there's, in general, linguists will tell you that there's basically two purposes of conversation, and that is information exchange and impression management. In other words, managing the impression we're making on other people. The 
problem lately is that what was I want this person to think well of me in the past has become commoditized and uh, has become part of our addiction to work, that we're always thinking about our brand and trying to strengthen our brands in a way that just makes this what would have been normally a healthy and relaxing activity. It's turned into like a stress, a source of stress, a source of pressure. And so, yeah, there's a lot of dread and anxiety wrapped up in creating a good impression now, whereas that used to be just a normal function of social interaction. That's another part of it. But I will say that it's really wrong-headed approach to think about leveraging conversation, right? To think about conversation as something that we do for a purpose that's other than building relationships and building society, right? Social interaction is meant to be a part of society. It's a wrong approach to make even our conversations part of our work. Celeste, I'm wondering what you would suggest in terms of, I suppose, to take a trendy phrase right now, you know, reprogramming our sense of self in terms of if one perceives that their self-worth is based on their number of social media followers or their number of LinkedIn connections or how much they get paid or or their standing in their company they work for. I mean, there's a lot of sort of these materialistic sociological markers of how a person might gauge their sense of self-worth in the world. And if we start to separate ourselves from this idea that these numerical metrics equal our inherent value or our virtue, what do we start to replace that with? If, if someone's weaning themselves off of this addiction of constantly making more money, constantly increasing their social media following, et cetera, what does one do when A, they have that realization and go, oh, I'm not my bank account, I'm not my social media following, okay, then what's driving me? If they've been driven by something like that for so long, how do we begin to replace that with something that is a healthier and more sustainable motivation? Okay, so can I ask you some questions? Do you mind? Is that okay? Please do. <laughs> okay, so what is your goal in your work? What is it that you want to achieve? On a very fundamental level, I suppose it's to make money so that I can shelter myself and put food on the table and access healthcare and fundamentally thrive in the modern world. Okay. And why do you want to make more money? I assume you want to grow your income. So why? What is the purpose of having the bigger, healthier bank account? Well, I suppose I've associated that with a level of choice and freedom that money in and of itself is not necessarily the thing that I'm going for. It's what the money represents, which is the idea that I will have more choice and more access and feel freer in my life. Okay. And what do you get in exchange for all of that? You mean right now or when I make more money? <laughs> I mean, has your income gone up? You're earning more money, but you are working hard to achieve some level of income. I'm actually not. <laughs> I'm actually not Celeste. My income's gone down. <laughs> I don't know if you have like a goal number in your mind or not, but I wonder what that money is going to get you. I mean, in your perspective, if you're focused on earning money because it will get you something like more choice or access. So what does that mean specifically? What is it that you actually want to achieve? Well, that's, I think initially what I'd love to do is buy property. It's something that I've wanted to do for a while is own my own home and buy some land. 
I'm big into animal rescue. As Whitney mentioned, we have some animals and somehow I keep acquiring more. And I like the idea of having some acreage and being able to adopt and rescue more animals. And I would need money to buy that acreage in that house. Great. Okay. And what is the purpose of buying the house and the property, all that acreage? I think a sense of safety and security that I have some semblance of higher security or safety by having my own home. Okay, why? What is the end goal of that? I mean, what's the reason that you want to have that feeling of safety and security? What does that get for you? I think so I can feel better about myself. It's almost like it's a part of it is an ego validation. It's like, oh, you did well, Jason. You did something good. You provided for your girlfriend and your animals and you're a good guy. You did well. It's almost like a sense of validation, I think. Interesting. So why do you need the validation? What is missing for you? Because I still struggle with validating myself and I still struggle with patting myself on the back independent of those things and going, you're lovable and you're worthy, Jason. Like regardless of the amount of money you have or social standing, regardless of those things, you're lovable. I still have an idea, Celeste, that my lovability and my worth in this world is somehow tied to those things. So you're really talking about emotional security here, stuff that goes on inside your mind instead of things that are exterior. I mean, when we were making more money, when you were, had a higher income, did you feel better? Were you happy? I think my ego felt better for a little while until I realized that it was a very dangerous thing and unsustainable thing to tie my sense of self to the amount of money I was making. And I remember the year after you know, that I made whatever the highest amount that I made in a year and it went down. I remember thinking, oh God, I did something wrong. I screwed up. And I very much had to go through the emotional roller coaster of starting to detach that. But I think overall, you know, it's, I still have this idea of, yeah, self worth and my sense of self being tied to it that I still am unraveling. So honestly, this is a great line of questioning for you. And I'm, I really think it could lead you to some new solutions. Maybe there are other ways to get what you need besides just working hard and earning more money. No. And I was actually more stressed the years that I was making more money. If I look back to maintain that, and I was literally burning the candle, well, literally, I'm not a candle, proverbially speaking, (laughs) burning the candle at both ends. Celeste, may I ask you, what is your end goal? I think I want to make the world a slightly better place. I mean, I want to be useful. I want to make a positive difference and make things at least a little bit better. Well, I perceive you as making it a lot better for me. And I'm so grateful that that is your goal, Celeste, because it reaches myself and Jason and our listeners in such a profound way. And I yearn for more people to be talking about the things that you discuss in your books and all of the places that you speak and share. You are just such a joy to listen to. And I feel grateful because (laughs) I want to go listen back to this episode again, to be honest. (laughs) I don't know if I've ever desired to listen to an episode of our podcast over again after recording it. And that gift that you have given me to listen more, to step back, to analyze these goals. And the gift that you just gave Jason is really profound because it's not just for him, it's for the listener and myself. I want to go back and answer those questions (laughs) for myself. And it's just so important what you're doing. I can't wait to read your upcoming book. It's something that I've really needed myself. And I'm grateful that you took the time and 
bringing all these different perspectives together. And you know, speaking of making the world better, communication is one of the ways that we best do that. And I think so many people are yearning to learn how to become better communicators and not just in this quick fix perspective that we can get from reading an article. But when I read your books, I find so much value in them. And that's why I read them again, because each time there's discovering more. And I just am immensely grateful. I'm grateful for your time here on the podcast, too. It's been so lovely. Oh, thanks. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. It's been great. Well, for dear listener, you to dive deeper into Celeste's work, we will link to all of her books and her website on our show notes, which our website again is wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. Click on the podcast section. It will take you to the full transcript and the show notes for this episode where you can dig into Celeste's book and get your hands on her wonderful perspectives and wisdom. Celeste, thank you. Thank you for doing that experiment with me. I, I feel like my state has actually changed through this conversation and this interaction with you. It's, it's been really deep and beautiful, and it's been a pleasure having you. Thank you so much. Thanks. Bye. Yeah. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.